you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4. 1 Peter, chapter 4. We'll read the first six verses of 1 Peter, chapter 4. Please follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read. 1 Peter, chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he hath suffered, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. For the time is already for the time is already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give an account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For this cause the gospel was preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Holy Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time, this day, this Sabbath day that you have given us to set aside all the things of our, of our earthly endeavors and to focus our attention on you, on your worship. And God, we thank you mostly, preeminently for this time when we come to hear your word preached to us. God, we pray again for your help. We pray that you would make us even now to be good soil, to receive the seed of the gospel. God, remove from us pride. Remove from us pride that would that would resist and say that we have no sin. Your word tells us that we would be liars if we said that. Remove from us the pride that tells us we, we have things in control ourselves. God, we pray this morning that you would sanctify your people. God, we ask that you would save sinners. It's for your kingdom's sake and for your glory that we pray these things. Amen. Our text today starts a new chapter in our Bibles. Chapter 4. Some of you have wondered, will we ever get to chapter 4? Here we are, chapter 4. But I want to remind you that as Peter wrote this epistle, as he wrote this letter, he did not... Uh, take a break, get up, go get a new pen and start a new page and write at the top a big four. That's not how this worked, right? The, the chapter and verse divisions, we're glad for them. Yeah, I'll tell you how we're glad for them. I stand and say, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4 and you all got there, 
right? I mean, that, so we're glad for chapter divisions. We're glad for verse divisions, but they're not original to the scripture and they're not inspired. So as we read, we need to read with an awareness of continued thought. And, and here we need to stay with Peter's train of thought from chapter three as we come to these verses in chapter four. And this text gives us a great reminder of this because it begins with the word in most of our English Bibles with the word therefore. Some of you already know I'm going to say it. You see the word therefore, you got to see what it's there for. And what it's there for is to refer us back to what has already been, back to what we've been studying. So to understand these verses, we need to, um, to begin with this therefore. Therefore, as Christ had suffered for us in the flesh. And, and we've come to see that one of the main focuses of this letter that Peter writes uh, is suffering. And we've said that suffering is common to all people. But there is specific and particular suffering for the believer. Uh, and, and, and we've also seen over and over again, as Peter has addressed suffering and suffering of Christians, that Christ has over and over again been raised as an example for us in suffering. An example for us. So, so last week we talked about the suffering of Christ. Christ suffered once for sin, And we said that this is not only speaking to his suffering in general, but this is speaking particularly to Christ's suffering in his death on the cross. Now, now there is certainly a sense that we could say all of Christ's humiliation that we would call it is his uh, coming and being born as a man, taking to himself a true body and a reasonable. So all of this is suffering. If you don't think it's suffering, just imagine he left his throne God of heaven. And the best day you and I have ever had is suffering in comparison to that. Uh, but particularly and specifically, speaking of Christ's suffering on the cross as he died there as payment for our sins. So, so we've been speaking of these things. We saw that last week. And then we come to chapter 4 and we read that Christ suffered for us in the flesh. And again, we must say, well, well, this idea of suffering carries forward. So we need to remember what has come before. And the last verses of chapter three help us in this. Chapter three, if you look at verse 18, it says Christ suffered once for sin. And then we go toward the end of the chapter and we see a reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject to him. So we see in this, uh, as we come to chapter 4, and Christ's suffering is mentioned, his suffering in the flesh, we need to understand his suffering on the cross, and we also need to understand that this, this idea, this thinking now is including his resurrection. This is the mind of Christ when it comes to his suffering. It included resurrection and victory. So if we're to understand the remainder of this Section, we must have this victory over sin in mind. We read here of Christ's suffering and we think of the price that he paid, but we also must think of the victory that he won. Jesus in the resurrection uh, demonstrates what he told Mary and Martha at Lazarus' grave. I am the resurrection and the life. 
And Christians, we have life and we have hope of resurrection because of Christ and because of his suffering for us in the flesh. Jesus did not suffer that we would live defeated lives, but that we might live in victory. He won victory and Jesus didn't need to win victory over sin for himself. He won victory over sin on our behalf. He won victory over sin for us. He came and he suffered and he overcame that we might have life, that we might have abundant life. So very quickly, as we see this phrase, let's point out that this phrase, Christ suffered in the flesh. It tells us that Christ suffered, it says, for us. Christ suffered for us. And this speaks to the substitutionary nature of his life and his death and his resurrection. Christ suffered for us. And it says he suffered for us in the flesh. So we're reminded here of the nature of Christ's suffering. God does not suffer. That is very important as we understand God, as we uh, frame in our own minds our theology. Now you may think, well, I don't have a theology. Yes, you have a theology. Uh, some very smart men have written books like Everyone is a Theologian. Everyone, everyone, everyone is a theologian. Now there are good theologians and bad theologians, but everyone is a theologian. Well, I know an atheist. Well, they're a theologian. They're, they're a bad theologian, but they're a theologian. And we're all theologians, so you're developing in your mind thoughts about God. And it is very important for us to know that God does not suffer. But Jesus Christ was more than very God. He is very God and very man. And, and just to, to remind us the use of the term very. We don't use the word very in that way when we talk about very. When we say very, we, we mean to a great extent or to a greater extent. Uh, this ice cream is good. But that ice cream is very good. We mean to a greater extent. When we say Jesus was very man, we don't mean that he was to a greater extent. We mean truly. It comes from uh, veritas. It comes from the, the Latin word there. So we, when we say he's very man, we mean he's truly man. And he is truly God and truly man. He is very God and very man. God does not suffer, but Jesus Christ, very God and very man, suffered, the text tells us, in the flesh, that is, according to his humanity. God does not suffer. God does not die. Jesus, as man, suffered and died according to his humanity. This opening phrase lays a foundation for us based on Christ's suffering for us in the flesh. We have the basis for an upcoming command. We're going to get to the command here in just a moment. But, but this lays a basis. Christ suffered for us in the flesh. And it lays a basis for us for this command that is coming. Christ suffered for us in the flesh. Then what follows is a command. And then four motivations for obeying that command. So we must keep in mind that the foundation of all this. Is that our Savior suffered for us in the flesh, suffered and died for us and for our salvation. So now we come to the command. Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Some of your Bibles say with the same thinking, some with the same purpose. 
But they all say the same thing. Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. This command before us to arm ourselves speaks to readiness. Some of you are military men. Some of you are police officers. When we think arm yourselves, we think about you. We think about your jobs. We think about the readiness that comes preparing for something. We, we think of this context. Now, now this word in, in this context of preparing, it does make us to think about those, those military actions. Uh, but, but we are also reminded that just a few verses back and just a few weeks ago, we considered a verse that said, be ready, be ready to give a reason or to give a defense, to give an apologia to anyone who asks of you for the hope that lies within you. Be ready. And you'll remember in that sermon, I said over and over, be ready, be prepared, prepare that you might be prepared, be readying that you might be ready. Uh, so now we see this command to arm yourselves and it, and it is uh, another command of preparedness. And we think about the picture of a soldier preparing for battle. And what a reminder this is for us Christians. That we live not on a playground, but on a battleground. This world is not a safe place, Christians. Even when everything around us, according to our physical eyes, looks safe, Christian, there is a spiritual battle raging for your soul. Beloved, we, we are not to be caught off guard in this battle. The, the instruction here, today, the command is to arm yourselves for this battle. There is a preparedness. It is amazing to me how many Christians that I speak to who are very prepared when it comes to physical altercations. When it comes to physical altercations. Some, some are preparing with their hands and with their judo chop and others are preparing by saying well I have um, I have a weapon and I will be prepared I will arm myself I wondered as I would preach this how many concealed weapons there may be in this very room maybe more than we think and, and it, it, it amazes me how many times Christians are prepared for those physical Altercations, and and by the way, I'm not trying to discourage that. I, I'm I'm pro preparation in that way. Arm yourself, fathers and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers. We arm ourselves in order to defend the innocent against those who intend evil. But can we just be honest for just a moment? Statistics tell us that the likelihood of us facing some enemy and having to use that pistol that's very low I mean for most of us that will never happen and we thank God for that right we want to be prepared we want to be prepared but then we pray that it will never happen so be prepared how many of us think about that and we we want to be prepared but then when it comes to a spiritual battle spiritual battle is different I mean, we prepare for a physical battle that we hope will never happen, that we think statistically will probably never happen. But the spiritual battle, it's happening. It's guaranteed. It is certain. And how many Christians carry their pistol at their side or in their purse 
and do not prepare by arming themselves with the same mind as Christ. This is very important. I got off my notes, so I've got to find my place. Wow. The, the, the point here is we are instructed to arm ourselves, and it is not a suggestion. It is a command, and it is a command of Christ, our King. Arm yourself. Arm yourself. So we continue reading, and we may be surprised when we think of arming ourselves. Immediately we think of earthly battles. We think of battling against flesh and blood. But what Scripture reminds us again and again, and we read earlier, is that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. The battle is not a physical battle for us. The battle is spiritual, and the weapons are spiritual. Now, we read earlier from Ephesians chapter 6 a list of the armor, a list of weaponry, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, and all prayer. Be prepared. And now we come, and these particular pieces of armor are for the Christian weapons for the spiritual battle. And here in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4, we have all these pieces of armor listed for us in Ephesians summed up under one title. I think we're speaking of the same thing here. Arm yourselves with the mind of Christ. Arm yourself with the same thinking. Arm yourself with the same mind. Now, I mentioned that we have different ways of saying this. Arm yourself with the same purpose as New American Standard. I think your ESV says arm yourself with the same way of thinking. I've read this morning from the King James. Arm yourself with the same mind. So we are to have the same mind of Christ and specifically the mind of Christ in relation to his suffering. And we remember that the mind of Christ in relation to his suffering was with a view to victory. He endured the cross knowing what lay before him, knowing that there was victory in front of him. Now, I want to point out here that our suffering and Christ's suffering, there's a comparison going on in the text. Our suffering, Christ's suffering. But we need to keep in mind, Christians, our suffering is not the same as Christ's suffering. There are similarities. There are connecting points. But our suffering is not the same as his. When he suffered on the cross, when he suffered, he suffered uh, I was thinking of the right word to use. He suffered vicariously. He suffered on our behalf for us. He suffered meritoriously. He suffered paying for sin that was ours. He, he suffered for us. He suffered in a way that our suffering does not meet. Our suffering is not meritorious. Our suffering is not vicarious. So we are to have the same mind as Christ. Uh, unless we think like Christ, unless we share his purpose, his mind, we would be tempted in our suffering to despair. We would be tempted to, to give up, to not endure. So arm yourself with the same mind. Arm yourself with the mind of Christ. This is our command and we must do this to endure. Now, following this, we have in the text the motivations for our obedience to this command. We can think of these as pillars holding up this command for us. It strikes me <coughs> as I read here, uh, have the same mind as Christ. And by the way, we see that in Philippians. We see that elsewhere in Scripture. But I hear people say, you can't tell people what to think. You just can't tell people what to think. Well, all over Scripture, God tells us what to think. 
God tells us what to think, how to think. He, God, God doesn't obey that. He tells us what to think. And that's what is in view here when we see this, have the same mind as Christ. And we have these four motivations that come before us. For four motivations for Christ-like thinking. I'll list them for you and then we'll consider each one in brief. You can find these motivations right here in the text plainly laid out. Um, three of them begin with four. F-O-R. Three of them begin with four and you can see them coming out in the text. And, and we see in this use of the word for a reasoned argument in favor of arming yourself with the mind of Christ. And, and they're laid out here for us very plainly, but in preacher fashion, I have reworded them and you'll see them in the text. I've given them these titles, a severed connection to sin, a shameful past of sin, a soon coming judgment of sin, and a sure salvation from sin. So that's the four reasons, the four undergirdings that we have for this command. So in the first place, we should arm ourselves in the same mind of Christ because we have a severed connection to sin. So we continue reading in verse one, for he hath suffered in the flesh, for, for he, I'm leaving out words, for he that hath suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. He that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he would no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. So first let's address who is this speaking of when we see here, um, he who has suffered in the flesh. We've just spoken of Christ suffering for us in the flesh in verse one. And now we read he who has suffered uh, so, so are we speaking here of Christ's suffering? Is this, again, a reference to Christ's suffering? Some believe that it is. I do not believe that this is a reference to Christ's suffering. But if you see that here, I just want to point out, in order to stay within the bounds of Scripture and orthodoxy, this must be understood in a particular way. If he who suffered is in reference to Jesus Christ, then the remainder of the phrase, has ceased from sin, absolutely cannot mean stop sinning. Jesus never sinned. So in that way, in that understanding, he has not ceased from sin. Have you ever heard that old joke about, hey, did you stop beating your wife? How do you answer that? No or yes? Or, I mean, how do, how do you answer that question? It's the same conundrum we get in here. Uh, he ceased from sin cannot mean that Jesus Christ stopped sinning because he's never Sin. Jesus never sinned in this way, so he cannot cease from sin in that way. Those who believe that this is a reference to Jesus, they understand cease from sin to speak to Jesus' work in defeating sin. Jesus suffered. He, he worked in dealing with sin, and his work in dealing with sin is now done. He suffered in the flesh, and now he has ceased from Dealing with sin. And they, they understand it in that way. And in that way they are uh, within the realm of orthodoxy. Those who believe this to be uh, teaching or, or a reference to Jesus would not be heretical if they understood it in that way. But as I mentioned, I do disagree with that interpretation. I think the key is in verse 2 to understanding who this is referring to or to whom this is referring. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, 
that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh, but to the will of God. It seems obvious to me that this is speaking about believers and believers should no longer live in the flesh, but according to the will of God. This is speaking about us. But if this speaks about believers, now we've got more problems. Now we've got more questions that we need to answer. How do we understand if this is speaking, he who suffered is speaking about believers. How are we to understand this statement? Does it mean that those who suffer more are more holy than those who suffer little? Do these words, he has ceased from sin, put before us a path for the Christian to sinless perfection? Is that what we have here? Boy, Satan, Satan comes at us with that, doesn't he? You sin and you call yourself a Christian. You know the Bible says, cease from sin. We need to answer these questions. And, and the answer, of course, is a resounding no. This is not speaking about um, holiness obtained through suffering. And this is certainly not speaking about sinless perfection that may be obtained by the Christian. The one who suffered is a reference to our sharing in the suffering of Christ. Christ died and we died with him. That's pictured in our baptism. That's pictured in our baptism that we died with him. We are buried with him and we are raised to walk in newness of life. And where does that newness of life come from? It's Christ's life. It's Christ's resurrected life. And so that's pictured in our baptism that we are dead with Christ. It's also spoken of in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Cease from sin. Here is not speaking then of sinless perfection. We have suffered with him. We share in the suffering of Christ. We died with him. We are buried with him. And there is a changed relationship then for the believer to sin. A changed relationship. We were slaves to sin. We did in times past walk in sin. That is step by step, moment by moment, plodding in sin. But we who shared in the death of Christ are dead to sin. So you hear that reference to Romans 6. Now listen to these words from Romans 6, beginning in verse 3. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. Uh, can I say this? I think in Romans 6 when it speaks of baptism, it's not talking about water being dunked in the water. I think this is being inducted into being inducted into. Sometimes that word is used like in the Old Testament, they were baptized into Moses. Well, they weren't dunked in the water into Moses. They were inducted into Moses' van. So, so I think this here in Romans 6 is speaking to being baptized into Christ, that is inducted into Christ, and being inducted into his death. Verse 4, Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into his death. That like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together, that picturing burial, in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. 
that the body of sin might be done away with, might be destroyed, and henceforth we should not serve sin. Henceforth we should not serve sin. Serve sin no longer. We are dead to sin. Verse 7, for he that is dead is freed from sin. So we have this picture uh, from Romans 6 that I think Peter is speaking of the same thing here. He that has suffered, shared in the suffering of Christ, is ceased from sin. There is a changed relationship. We don't have the same relationship to sin we did before. Before our union with Christ. Sin no longer reigns. We are to reckon ourselves dead to sin. How shall we who are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now, Christians, we do stupidly commit sin. And my wife doesn't like it when I use the word stupid in the sermon. So I, I'm very careful about that word, and it's intentional. Christians, when we sin, it's stupid. And we do stupidly commit sin. <laughs> But if, but if Christ is reigning, if Christ is the reigning, enthroned king of our souls, then there's no room. That's the, the, the throne of your soul is not a double seat. There's no, no room for sin to reign there as well. Our former connection to sin as believers is severed. Our former relationship to sin, as the text says, is ceased. Christian, you who are here today and you are thoughtlessly committing sin, arm yourself with the mind of Christ. Think about your sin the same way that Jesus thinks about your sin, knowing that you have a severed relationship to sin. No longer live in the flesh to the lusts of men, but live henceforth from now on, live unto God. First, we see we have a severed relationship to sin, so we should arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. Secondly, we should arm ourselves with the mind of Christ because of a shameful past. Verse 3 for the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. This list here speaks to alcohol abuse, sinful sexual behavior, what the Bible calls adultery and fornication and the parties that accompany such behavior, the social events that accompany this sinful behavior. And if you summed it all up, it would be, I struggle here whether to use abuse or misuse. I'm gonna say misuse, you can think of it either way. The, the misuse of alcohol, the misuse of people, and the misuse of relationships. That's what we see in this. Isn't it telling? The foolishness of sinful men. To see that the deviant behavior of 2,000 years ago when Peter wrote this letter is the same exact deviant behavior that we see among us today. It's the same thing. There's nothing new. How could someone say, the Bible is not relevant? 
to our day. This, this could have been written in today's paper. Abuse of alcohol, substances, sexual sin, and the parties that are... This, this, this couldn't be more relevant. So we understand also that this sinful debauchery that is listed here, it's not listed here because those outside the church have been committing this sin. That's kind of what we expect, right? Unbelievers, that's kind of what we expect of them. But this list is here because there were those inside the church who were committing these sins, who behaved in this manner. It seems clear in the text that there were some professing Christians who were pursuing a course of sensual lust and drunkenness, what the text calls abominable idolatries. And the reason that Peter gives us that we should have the same mind as Christ, uh, as Christ is that we have had enough time living like the Gentiles. Now when he says living like the Gentiles, this is just Peter's way of saying that we have had enough time living like those lost, sinful people. Enough time living like the world. Now Christian, no matter how old you are here, if you are Christ, some of you have come to Christ at quite a young age and you did not have the opportunity for open, outward sinful behavior. I don't want to minimize your sin, but open, outward sinful behavior, perhaps if you came to Christ while you lived in your parents' home, they didn't allow you to do certain things that you would have done had you had the opportunity. Others of us have come to Christ at an older age after living long lives of shameful, godless existence. But Christian, no matter your age, no matter when you came to Christ, the question comes to you from this text. Was, wasn't that enough time to live in sin? Wasn't that enough godliness, godlessness? Wasn't that enough drunkenness? Wasn't that enough sexual promiscuity? Wasn't that enough pornography? Wasn't it enough? Was your time without Christ ample to prove that that way of living is empty? To prove that that life is unfulfilling? To prove that it is not so much a way of life as it is a way of death? Wasn't it enough? I wonder how many of us in this very room right now need to say in our own heart and mind that sin that I'm nursing that sin that I keep as my pet, that sin that maybe nobody else knows about. Enough! It's enough, it's enough of that. Can't you say, I have too much shameful, sinful past. I have too much of my life spent in sin. It is now time to put that away and arm myself with the mind of Christ. Enough! In the third place, we should arm ourselves with the mind of Christ because of a soon coming judgment. Continue reading in verse 4. 
wherein they think it's strange that we run not with them to the same excess of riot or excess of dissipation, speaking evil of you. And they shall give an account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. These verses begin by reminding us that when we live as Christians in this world, we will be thought strange. Isn't that funny how we spend so much of our life trying to fit in? So much of our life trying to conform? So much of our life trying to look like everybody else? It, that, that's what we spend our life doing. But Christian, if you live as a Christian, you won't fit in. You won't conform. You will be thought strange. Worldlings will be surprised, even shocked, if you have a Christ-like attitude about sin, if you shun sin. Why do you make such a big deal about sex? And they mean sex outside the bounds of marriage. Everybody looks at porn. It's only natural what you're talking about. It's unreasonable to expect of unmarried people to abstain from sex. They will say, as long as you don't, as long as you don't drive, overindulging in alcohol is fine. As long as you don't drive and endanger people. All they know is drunken parties and orgies and sin without bounds. Why would you have a mind that is different? And they'll think it's strange. And the text tells us they will speak evil of you bad enough they think it's strange but you will be slandered for this attitude but verse 5 then reminds us that there is a reckoning day coming every person will give an account those who are unbelievers will stand before the righteous judge and they will face his justice as they are cast into the lake of fire but Christians let us not forget that we will also stand before the judgment seat of Christ our works on earth will be judged. Our righteousness will be rewarded. And our sinful attitudes and actions will be wood, hay, and stubble to be burned. It is appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment. Though the world think it strange. Though they ridicule and deride. Beloved, we must arm ourselves with the mind of Christ because there is a sure, soon coming judgment of sin. Fourthly and lastly, we must arm ourselves with the same mind as Christ because of a sure salvation from sin. We must arm ourselves with the same mind as Christ because of a sure salvation from sin. Let's read verse 6. For this cause, for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. I'm so thankful that Peter does not leave us here. To be sin and righteousness accountants. 
tallying up the good, tallying up the bad in our lives to see if we might find some hope for eternity. That's not found here. What a blessing. There is nothing of works salvation in this. We have been exhorted to live in a Christ-like manner, but the final thought is a gospel thought. This is why the gospel is preached. Uh, apparently there had been some question about those who had died uh, uh, in Christ. And we remember the time that this was written. And this was at the beginning of a time of very heavy persecution. Christians would be put to death in horrendous ways simply for being obedient to the words of Christ. And Peter reminds us here that the gospel was preached to those who are now dead. And that it was preached to them. And there's also application here for us. The gospel is preached to us who will one day be dead in the flesh. But we will be alive. Living according to God in the spirit. Christian, remember, remember your severed relationship to sin. Remember your shameful past of sin. Remember that there is a soon coming judgment for sin and, and put on the mind of Christ. Arm yourself. Be washed with the water of the word. Have your mind renewed by scripture. But in all these things, never forget the gospel. Never forget the suffering of Jesus Christ and our sharing by grace through faith in his death, in his resurrection. This must be a constant thought in our minds. We will be judged in the world. We will be judged by the world in the world. We will be ridiculed and reviled. Some will be persecuted. We, this is hard for us to think about because in our day we don't face persecution, not in, in where we live. We don't face persecution like they saw, but it may come. And some of us may be persecuted. Some of us may even be put to death. But that is to say, some of us may be put to death in the flesh. And we fear not those who can only destroy the flesh because of the gospel. Lost person, this, the, the truth of this passage of scripture for the lost person, this does not apply to you if you're not a child of God by repentant faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot arm yourself with the mind of Christ if you are not in Christ. And the judgment that is spoken of in this text will be your judgment and it will be for you everlasting torment. So, I ask you, I beg of you, won't you come to Jesus today trusting in Him, trusting in His life for your righteousness, trusting in His death for your payment for sin? Won't you turn away from your sin? Won't you turn away from self? The same questions that we've asked the Christians in this sermon, I now ask of you, haven't you lived in sin long enough? Haven't you wasted enough time? Come to Jesus Christ today by faith, repenting and receive the salvation that is freely offered to everyone who believes. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would apply these words to our heart. 
God, we ask that, that in our minds, in our hearts, as we walk out these doors, that we would not forget what you have spoken to us in this place, in this time. God, we pray that through your Holy Spirit, we will have conviction of sin and righteousness and coming judgment. We pray that you would bring the grace of repentance, that you would grant to us the grace of faith. We pray that you would save sinners. God, I pray for those Christians who are here, who have been nursing sin. Pray that you would convict. I pray that just as, as Peter, the author of these words, <coughs> denied you three times with cursings, but you restored him to close fellowship. God, I pray that you would do that work in the lives of believers here today. Grant to us repentance and restore to us fellowship and communion with you. As we come to the table, God, I pray that you would convict us that we not abstain, but that we come by faith, repenting, resting in Christ. To his name and for his kingdom's sake that we pray these things. Amen.